Oh, low battery. It won't last. Okay, so let's fix that. Cooking, amen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, all right, amen. <laughs> so you got your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. So last week we talked about one of the ways to look at the book of Revelation, the seven churches, was that they were representative of ages. And I don't like that view. I think you have to force it. I, and I wanted us to shift a little bit and think about the, seeing the unity of the churches and seeing the churches, the seven churches representative, not just individual churches, but the fact that when he wrote the letter, he wrote it to all seven churches. They could read what he said to the other six churches. Each church could read it. We also talked about the fact there were more than seven churches in existence at that time. And so when he wrote these letters, he was giving a message that was good for all churches through all times, through all ages. And last week, we wanted to focus on spiritual warfare. Uh, and we talked about the fact that the church is really one. What we're doing this morning here at First Baptist Church of Ableton, we're worshiping uh, now. Other churches are just getting started. They're in the song service, and they'll be preach will be preaching shortly. Some have already finished, and then others uh, to the West Coast will be starting in a few hours all the way to the ends of the earth. What we're doing this morning is not unique just to us. There are millions of other believers around the world who are gathering together to worship God this morning and look into the Word of God. And we're part of a family that we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven. Amen? And so I didn't think about this last week, but uh, the finance committee met and saw this. I put this on the bulletin board in the conference room. And uh, what I have here is two letters. Uh, one is from First Baptist Church of Lithia Springs, and the other one's from Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. And I've known other churches who've done this through the years. Uh, when I was a young pastor, I would routinely get a card in the mail from a church in South Georgia I didn't know who they were, I don't know how they found out about me, but they would regularly pray for me and they would send me a card and everybody in the prayer meeting would sign the card and tell me that they were praying for me and for the church. When a couple of weeks ago, First Baptist Church Mableton was the church of the week. Uh, Dr. Jason Loudermilk does that, he takes the churches in the association every week, he picks a church and invites all the churches to pray for that church. And that's a great thing, amen. When a couple of weeks ago, when we were the church of the week, uh, these two churches prayed for us. And this, I like this one, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. We consider it a privilege to pray for and with other kingdom believers. And it is a joy to lift up our sister churches in this community, especially as you seek God's will in your search for a pastor. And Mount Pisgah says, uh, we pray that God would give you and your leadership wisdom as you look to the future, especially during the transition process. And uh, a clear vision working to advance the kingdom of God. And then it's signed. It's signed by all the members of the church that were in the prayer meeting that did that. By the way, we're, we're going to start doing this on Wednesday nights. Amen. We're going to start. This is a great thing. And, uh, and in coming weeks, we're actually going to notch up the prayer ministry of the church as we get ready to move. As your committee is now meeting and we're moving forward in this process, we're going to bathe everything in prayer. Amen. And even as other churches are praying for us, we're going to be 
we're going to be praying for them. And so that, that's what the church looks like right there, beloved. Amen? That's what the church looks like, and, and that's a beautiful thing. So with that in mind, this week, I want to look at the seven churches, and I want them to look at as seven individual literal churches that existed in the day, but also seven churches that represent all churches of all types throughout history. In other words, at any given time, a church is going to look like one of these seven churches, be going through what one of these seven churches went through, maybe even more than that. Uh, and so that's what we want to look at. And, and, and this is interesting. Um, and we're not going to look at all seven. I'll break it down. I'll say a little bit more that, about that in a minute. I have a book that I bought 30-something years ago when I was in the Army, written by Billy Graham called Approaching Hoofbeats. And it was his book that he wrote about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in that book, he talks about the seven churches, and he breaks them down into three groups, and I'm going to use his outline because I love the way he broke it down. I'm a little sad because last week I told you that the Lord kind of showed me to look at the seven churches through the eyes of spiritual warfare, and I thought, man, that's great. God really gave me a wonderful truth to, to be able to see that, and then as I'm looking through the book written by Billy Graham this week, he said the same thing, which means he is as smart as I am. That is just an absolute... <laughs> What it means is 30 years ago there was a seed sown and I forgot. <laughs> is he is a, he is, I, you know, I miss him already, amen? Can't wait to meet him. But I was going somewhere with that. But anyways, warfare is something that the church has recognized. And I'm jealous for the church of Jesus Christ. I'll be here for a little while. You're going to call a new pastor and you're going to fall in love with him. I'm going to move on. And for the most part, you'll forget me. But the one thing you'll know in the time that I'm here is I am jealous for the church of Jesus Christ that I am, I am defensive for the body of Christ, that I believe in believers, and I am not a fatalist preacher, and I think that the worst of churches are still, uh, still have the best of opportunities because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, you'll know when God's through with you uh, because you'll be looking him in the face, amen? You'll be standing before him. When God is finished with us, we will know it. But tonight, uh, this morning, I want to look at the seven churches. And so we're going to look at how they represent Individual churches and different churches. All right, uh, let me give you what Billy Graham said. Four things, all right? Uh, he said, first of all, we need to realize that God sees and cares about us as individuals. All right? He sees you as an individual member of any local church. He sees and cares about us as individuals and as individual churches. Second, he sees us as sharing our lives with other believers in the church. You are not alone. Uh, when I preach on the family, I talk about the fact if you're a single person, if, you're, if your parents, maybe have, the Lord has called them home, and maybe you don't have a large family, or maybe you don't have brothers and sisters, I was the only child, um, you might think you're not part of a, a big family, but when you are part of the family of God, you have all the brothers and sisters that you can handle, amen? We're a part of the family of God. We are in this together. There's no such thing as a single Christian, amen? You're a part of the family of God. Thirdly, the issues to which the risen Lord spoke then are the very same issues about which he would speak to us today. And then fourth, although the form of each letter is practically the same, and if you've ever studied this, all right, he gives a greeting, there's a title of Christ, he gives them a word of praise, except for one church, Laodicea, he says nothing good to them. He gives a word of criticism, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, for those two churches, he says nothing negative to them. And then he gives a warning and a promise. But the content is different. So the, the form is the same, but the content is different because the church is different. So we want to look at these churches this morning. We'll look at them in three groups. And the first group we want to look at this morning is the two churches that God calls to a holy passion. The two churches that God calls to a holy passion. You have the church at Ephesus 
and you have the church at Laodicea. Ephesus and Laodicea. And Laodicea, again, is the church that, that God didn't have anything good to say about. When he speaks to them, his words are very powerful and very harsh. So the first thing this morning is a call to holy passion. In Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 through 31, Paul, when he left the church at, uh, when he left the church at Ephesus, he told them, he said, you be on guard because ravenous wolves are going to come in to try and destroy you. Paul warned them. He said, you look out, you test. There are going to be people who are going to come in and they're going to try and undermine the power and authority of the church. They're going to try and take away biblical doctrine. They're going to come in. They're going to attack you. They're going to be savage towards you and you need to be on guard for that. But now in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, this is what Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus. I know your works and I know your labor, and I know your patience, and how you cannot bear those which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. And so whatever it was that Paul said to them, they took, it, they took his words to heart, because now you have the church at Ephesus, and they're on guard. They're, they're testing. They're going to make sure. If you're going to come in and say you're an apostle, if you're going to come in and say you're a follower of Christ, they're going to check your doctrine. They're going to make sure that you're truly a believer in Christ. They had that part right. And they were patient for his sake, and they labored. And then look at verse 4. There. He says, nevertheless, I have something against you. You have left your first love. Now, I want you to look at that, and depending on what translation you have, all right, it says you have left your first love. It doesn't say you've lost your first love. It says you left your first love. When Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, this church that was doctrinally strong, testing to make sure that everybody that came into the church was right and believed the Bible and lived by the Word of God, yet there was something that they had forgotten. They'd forgotten their first love. And this is important. It doesn't say they lost their first love. Because if you lose something, you can search for it, and you may never find it again. But see, when you leave something, all you got to do is go back where you left it. Amen? I'm going to say that one more time. When you lose something, you can search for it. You may never get it back. But when you leave something, all you got to do is go back where you left it. See, the problem with the church at Ephesus, they were doing everything right, but they'd already, they'd already, within the first few years after the resurrection of Christ, after all the start of the church and everything that is happening, they were already leaving their first love. Not losing it, but they were leaving it. They were beginning to love things more. You know the danger of a church that, that loves good Bible doctrine and good Bible preaching is that they can wind up loving that more than they love the God who gave us the Bible and the good doctrinal prayer. Amen? The danger of a church is that we love our preachers more than we love the God of the preacher. And we haven't talked about this, but when, when Jesus writes, when he starts writing these letters, when he writes to these churches, he says, back in chapter 1, he says the mystery, he talks about the seven stars and the seven golden candlesticks, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. And most of us, most scholars and theologians believe he's talking about the church and the pastors of the church. Jesus places a high priority on pastors pastors. God knows what it means to shepherd a flock of God. And he said, uh, he said uh, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 315, you guys still got your bracelets. You got them hanging where you can see them. You still praying. Amen. He says, I will give you pastors after my heart who will feed you with wisdom and knowledge. But the danger, beloved, is that we come to the place where we now love the preacher more than we love God. 
And we ought to love our preachers. I mean, you ought to love your preachers. I am one. Amen. I, I, I don't want you to say, boy, I want you to say, we love you, Brother Ian, but we really love God. I mean, we hate you, Brother Ian, but we really love God. That's not much comfort to me. Amen. But I want you to love your preachers. I love preachers, but, but never at the expense of loving God. I love the Bible, but realize we ought to love the God who gave us the Bible. And the danger, beloved, is that we can leave, not lose, leave our first love. So you, and how do you know you've left your first love? Well, what do you do more than spend time with God? All you have to do, you want to know what somebody loves? Look at how they spend their time. You want to have, you want to have, I can tell you that there are people who love fishing more than they love God? Because guess where they are this morning? You want to know how I can tell you that there are people who love hunting more than they love God? Because guess where they are this morning? I'm pretty sure it's hunting season. I haven't hunted in a year, but if it ain't, we're close. Amen. Does that mean you can't take a Sunday off every now and you can't take a day? Of course not. But when your life is marked by something you'd rather do or someplace you'd rather be than with the people of God and the house of God worshiping God, that presents a problem. And he writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, you've got the theology right, you've got it, but you've left your first love. And so he's calling them back to a holy passion. Now that, at least there's a commendation there. They're doing something right. There's a commendation there. You know, you've left your first love. But then when you get to Laodicea, the very last church, chapter 3, verse 15 and 17, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and not cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because you say you're rich and increased with goods and you don't need anything and you don't even know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And when I read that story, when I hear about what he said to them, I think about the old, I think about the old parable, the old story, the emperor's new clothes. Y'all remember learning that as a child? Where those fancy guys came into town and they convinced the emperor that they had a special silk that only privileged people could see. And they were going to sew him a set of clothes and it was going to be the, and, and, they, and they presented it to him. And he didn't want to tell them that he couldn't see it because, because if they told him that only the best and wisest of people could see it, only the noblest. Of, and so, oh, what a beautiful. And so he puts it on and then he marches out and amongst the people and all the people start crying out, hey, everybody, look, the emperor's naked. <laughs> He's, he's got no clothes on. And we do that in the church. We, we convince ourselves that because we're the best or we're noble or there's something good about we, we convince ourselves that we're clothed and we're right when God says, not only are you not clothed and naked, but you're poor and you're blind and you're wretched and you're miserable. I've been miserable, and most of the times when I'm miserable, I know it. So does everybody else. <laughs> Amen. You get miserable. You're not the only People know it. But I, I would hate to think that I could ever come to the place where I was miserable and didn't even realize I was miserable anymore. Do you realize that there are churches who've become so comfortable with being grumpy and miserable that they don't even realize it anymore? And, and, and Jesus is writing to these churches and he's saying, remember your first love. And, and, and don't be lukewarm. Be cold or hot, but don't be lukewarm. Amen? And, 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 and my favorite, and if you, and y'all seen the, have you seen the movie War Room? Raise your hands. Seen War Room? Raise your hands. Yeah. And the little old lady, and all right, and, and the little old lady, and, and she's there in the house, and the little lady, and she, she gets to make her coffee, and she's talking about her relationship with the Lord. Well, it's okay. She says, oh, all right, you want some coffee? And she brings her some coffee, and she takes a sip of the coffee, and she goes, mm, mm. And the old lady goes, is there something wrong? She says, well, it's just the coffee's warm. Do you like your coffee warm? And she says, oh, no, I like my coffee hot. 
and she made her point. And, 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 and we've reached the point where we, we've become kind of lukewarm and, and we don't realize it. And the worst thing I think that God could say of anything to save a church is that because you're not cold or hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And so this call to holy passion, beloved, it's a call to be on fire for something that matters. You can be cold, but be cold when the time is right. But be on fire when, when the time calls for fire. Amen? We're in Georgia. I don't know what it's calling for right now. Cold, hot, I know we got rain. The way you can't, you can't tell. You get up in the morning, should I wear a jacket? You grab a jacket, you're not going to need it five minutes later. Welcome to Georgia, amen. But with God, there's a, and here's the thing, I say that because there's a principle in the Bible where God actually tells us that in the end times when things are going to get so bad and so rough that we're supposed to pray for the world and love the world and share the gospel with them, that God says there's actually a point. There's a verse, and I think it's in Jeremiah, it might be in Ezekiel, where God says that I will tell you now that you are no longer to pray for the wicked. That we're to be intentionally cold and distant from a world because God says you've done all the praying you can do, you've done all the work you can do, but the time now is for you to just back up and let me send my judgment. That's the only time, beloved, in the Bible you and I are allowed to be cold is when God says it's okay to let go of something and walk away. But on other times, God, we ought to be on fire for God. We ought to be on fire for Jesus. Amen? And so he calls us to holy passion. Let me, I'll tell you the story of a man and he was, uh, he was shipwrecked, and he was the only man on the island. He was shipwrecked, and uh, didn't know how long he was going to be on the island, so he made himself a place to live, and he, got all the, he built a big bonfire on the beach, got everything ready in case he saw a ship or something, he could signal a fire or something like that. And so he's living on the island, and he's been there for a while. One day off in the distance, he thinks he sees a light, he realizes it's a ship, it's flashing, he lights the signal fire. And then he gets very excited as he noticed the light's getting closer. And the ship comes closer to, to shore, and eventually a little boat comes off the ship, and they come, and they get him off the island, they take him back to the ship, and he's rescued. And as he's on this boat, and as they're leaving the island, the captain's talking to him about his time on the island. He says, let me ask you a question. He says, you were the only person on the island? He says, yes, I was. Well, when I look back on the island, on that hill on the top of the island there, I see three huts have been built. What are the three huts for if you're the only one on the island? Well, the one in the middle is where I lived. I had to have some place to live, and I built it up high where I could see and look and watch in case I was rescued. So that was where I lived. Well, what, about the, what about the hut on the left? What is that? He says, well, I'm a spiritual man. And so that was, that's church. I built a church. That's where I went to church so that I could worship God while I was there. That's amazing. Well, what about the hut on the, on the other side? What, about, what, what hut is that? He says, well, that's where I used to go to church till I got mad at the preacher <laughs> and moved to the church on the other side of the <laughs> Now, we laugh at that, beloved. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, only a Baptist can split a church of one, amen? <laughs> and we laugh at that because the reality is we love things more than we ought to, more than we love God, and, and, and our passion wanes. And, and the reality is you're a part of the bride of Christ. You're here this morning in your family, and God wants us to be passionate about him. And when we're passionate about loving him, we're going to be passionate about loving each other. Amen? And, and, and <laughs> I'll save that one. <laughs> Number two. Ephesus and Laodicea is a call to holy passion. Number two, he calls his church to righteousness. And we see that in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Now, I'm, I'm, 
I'm just here for a while. I'm your transitional pastor, and I want to be careful, but I want to be clear. My, my spiritual gift is prophecy, not foretelling the future, but preaching, preaching and teaching the Word of God. And because I have that gift, particularly not just of teaching, but of prophecy teaching, when I, when I say things, I tend to be blunt, more direct. That's, that's, just the, that's just the way. It's not just the way I was raised. That's just, I've tried. There's times when I've tried to preach sermons where I've tried to hold it back, and, it's, and the Holy Spirit just laughs. Okay, so there's times when I, I have, I'm very, I'm opinionated because I'm right. Amen. <laughs> That's part of the gift, you know, the prophet believes he's preaching the truth, and for the most part I do. But I say all that because I want to be very careful here. Every church today needs to address and engage the biblical call to righteousness. And this means that we recognize and we address wickedness. Every church, we're going to look quickly at these three churches, but every church, the world we're living in today we are redefining righteousness and wickedness, and we're doing it because we're not using the Bible anymore. See, the Word of God is going to tell us right and wrong. And I could list some things this morning, and half of you would say, that's it, I don't want to hear and preach again. I could split us down. I could guarantee you that there's things you believe, that I believe, that we're not in agreement with this morning. But it's not my job to convince you of anything. It's your job to read the Word of God and let God convince you. And you've got to know in your heart, when you say something is righteous and you say something is wicked, you better know that it's God who told you that it's righteous or wicked because one day you're going to stand before him and he's going to be the one who's going to tell you whether or not you were right or wrong. He's going to be the one that you're going to answer to. And we are living in a day when we are redefining everything. We are redefining marriage. We are redefining the sanctity of life. We are ethics has reached a... Christian ethics has reached an entirely new level with the introduction of biomolecular and engineering and, and genetic engineering and neurological studies, and we are questioning what it means to be human, and there is research, uh, research and technology out there that would stagger your mind, and there are preachers who can preach on it and do a great job of it and actually keep your attention. I ain't one of them. But we're living in a day when we're having to ask ourselves, when does life begin? When does life end? We're looking at artificial intelligence. People are still convinced that a computer can be alive. This is what we're living with today, and it's not going to get easier as we get closer to the return of Christ. It's going to get more difficult, and as a church, beloved, you and I need to take a stand as individual Christians. You'd better be willing to define righteousness and wickedness in your life and be able to answer to God for it. Now, with that in mind, the three churches, Pergamos, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he says, I have a few things against you because you have there those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit sexual immorality. Define that one in the world we're living in today. See, the first church he wrote to was Pergamos, and he warned them against false doctrine. He said, this is what he said. He writes to Pergamos, and he says, you're starting to think outside the Bible. You're starting to, you've allowed teachers to come in and teach you things not in Scripture, and they're leading you. And by the way, that wasn't the first time that happened. That happened to Israel. You read the Old Testament, false teachers came in. They came in and they tried to pull the Israelites away from faith in God, and they did. It's one of the reasons why God warned the Israelites is when you go into the land, and men and women, you go into the land and you see a man, you see a woman, and they're attractive, but you know they're not an Israelite, don't marry them because you'll wind up worshiping their gods. 
they'll pull you away. That was one of the big things that happened to Solomon when he went and took all of his wives and he began to leave his first love and he began to follow the gods that his wives, he wanted to keep his wives happy instead of God happy and he began to worship all of their gods and he set up temples for all of his wives to worship their false gods. All of these wives, man, I, I got one wife, that's it, Amen. I want to keep her happy. I can, two, forget it. My wife woke up one morning and punched me because she had a dream that I brought another woman home. <laughs> Beloved, it comes in slowly. And we begin to listen and think, well, that sounds like good. That's saying we get away from the Bible. And we, well, that makes sense. Do you remember that the Bible says in the very first book of the Bible, that the serpent was more subtle than any beast and he spoke sweet sounding words has God really said do you realize that in the thousands of years since the Garden of Eden to where we are today that the devil is still whispering in the ear of every church and every Christian has God really said that and so false false doctrine then to the church of Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 20 he says, I have a few things against you. You suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her a chance to repent. She repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and those that commit immorality with her into great tribulation, and I will kill her children with death, and the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. See, here's the problem. They went from false doctrine to false worship. And false practice. Now not only were they being told that it was okay to believe certain things, and they were accepting people into the church who were believing those things, they actually now began to practice those things. And that is what happens. You and I underestimate just how powerful the devil is and just how real wickedness is. And beloved, no Christian should ever forget just how real the presence of sin still is in your flesh. As a child of God, the devil knows that just because you're saved, he knows that if he can, he will still do everything he can to get to you and keep you from living for God. But God is greater. And the word is more powerful. And when we commit to, that's why Romans chapter 6 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not have dominion over you. I posted on a, a kind of a dumb video on Facebook this morning. I just had to go live for a few moments. I was writing and praying and looking and looking. I I've got fingernails. I've been chewing my nails for 35, 40 years since I was a child. And I decided about, I don't know, about a year ago, I'd, I'm, I'm going to stop. And, and I have no idea why. But I have fingernails now. I've been, I've been, I've been chewing. <laughs> somebody clapping? <laughs> I, I'm, I, you're here and you say, I chew my fingernails. There's hope. <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know why, I don't know what maybe, here's what I know, but here, this is why I went and put on Facebook, I said, you can still change. Amen? God isn't done with us, there's, there, we can still change. Anything, you think you're addicted to something, you think there's something that you, you've just always, I don't know if I'd started chewing my nails when I was a child because of anxiety and stress. And the child, first of all, shouldn't have that. But, but I've been a preacher for 20, for 30 years, a pastor for 20 years. You want anxiety? I shouldn't have fingers, amen? I should have chewed them off. But, but God, and it's, a, and it's dumb. I looked at it, and it's just fingernails, but it's not dumb. Because every time I look at my hand, I remember what God can do. Amen? And that's just because I quit biting my fingernails. Now, 
What is it in your life that you're struggling with? And you can count on this, beloved. There's something in your life that the devil still has a hold of. And if we're honest, most of us know what it is. And God can take that away. When we get back into the word and when we trust him and allow him. And so when Jesus writes to the church, he warns them against false doctrine. Then he warns them against false practice, false worship, idolatry. Stop it. You don't have to do that anymore. And not only do you not have to do that anymore, but there's a rebuke for us when we choose to do it. It breaks my heart when you walk into some churches today. Outside, they got a cross on you. Got a, it says church, everything about it. And by the way, some churches, that's a whole other sermon, but you got some churches, you don't know their churches, they've taken, they've taken a denomination. They don't say Baptist, Methodist anymore. Some of them don't even say church anymore. Community fellowship. Some of them don't say that. Community gathering. All these different names. You walk into some churches and you, you think you're walking into a church. You think you're walking into something where they honor God and represent Christ and you're in there. You, don't have, you won't be in there for five seconds before you realize that, that God left a long time ago. And that's happening in America right now. We're living in what we say, people still say, is a Christian nation. Can I say I beg to differ? I don't think a Christian nation would be as guilty of some of the violence and some of the hatred and the division and the animosity that we're seeing in our country today. Across denominations, across politics, across race. And beloved, we as the church, we've got... Now, you take a stand for doctrine, you're, you're going to have people who are going to disagree with you and there's going to be divisions. But the Bible, the Bible is the one that gives us the message of how to disagree with each other and still love each other in the process. Especially knowing that that person that I disagree with, their greatest problem may not be that they disagree with what the Bible says about a particular doctrine. Their greatest problem may be that they don't even have a relationship with the God of the Bible yet. And so while I'm arguing with them about sexuality and abortion and marriage and politics and all these things, all I'm doing there is pushing them further away from Christ. The only one who can bring them to a place where they believe the Bible the way that God wants them to believe the Bible. Amen? Well, then the church at Sardis. This is tough. Chapter 3, verse 1. These things saith he that has the seven spirits. I know your works... That you have a name, that you live, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. False doctrine leads to false worship and idolatry, and that leads to false life. The church at Sardis was guilty of self-righteousness and works. Works. Beloved, you ought to work for God. You ought to work for Jesus. You ought to work. You and I ought to work for him. But we're not working to earn his favor. We work because we already have his favor. I don't work to get him to love me. I work because he loves me. And I'm not trying to repay God because I never can and neither can you. I'm not working to get saved. I'm working because I am saved by the grace of God. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's why I hate going to so many pastor's meetings because all it becomes very quickly is just a brag session. One pastor bragging, another pastor bragging, two pastors trying to outdo each other. Look at my church, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm working. And wouldn't none of us be doing nothing if it wasn't for the grace of God. 
So a call to holy passion, a call to righteousness. And then here's the last thing this morning, and this is the toughest one, a call to suffer. To the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia, God says almost the exact same thing with a very significant difference. In chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, Do not fear those things which you will suffer. He already told them you're in the seat of Satan. You're sitting in the very seat of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Then in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy and true, that opens, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man's opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Same thing at Smyrna. Smyrna, the same way. Philadelphia, same church. Both of them faithful to God. Both of them. But Smyrna was going to have incredible opposition. They were going to be, there were members in that church who were going to be put in jail. Some of them would be even put to death. But to the church of Philadelphia, God says there will be no opposition. Nothing will stand in your way. Billy Graham writes about this in his book, and I didn't put all the notes down because I didn't want to get stuck preaching for too long, but the simple fact is there is no preacher who can tell you, and the Word of God does not tell us, why two people who are faithful to God, one goes through suffering, and one goes through life virtually looking like they've been completely untouched. I can't, I cannot answer the question. I cannot tell you why two people walk into a doctor's office and one walks out with joy and one walks out with tears. I cannot answer that question. But next week, and I'll, and I'll tell you now, and then we'll talk about this more next week, I can tell you that God walks out with both of them. And the one that walks out with weeping and the one that walks out with suffering walks out with a blessing that the one who walks out with joy will never know. When God calls you to suffer for him, if he calls you to suffer for him, he gives you his presence in a way that he doesn't give to anybody else. And when he writes to these churches, when he, when he, when he takes these two churches and he talks about suffering, he brackets, all right, the first Ephesus and Laodicea, right after Ephesus, Smyrna, right before Laodicea, Philadelphia, right, right between the two churches where he's calling to passion are two churches that are suffering. And then in the middle, there's all the, the three churches with the doctrine and the wrestling. And, and he brackets that suffering. He brackets that call to holiness with the understanding that no matter, and, and no matter how you live in this world, there's going to be at some point in your life. And Jesus, or Paul wrote this to Timothy, he said, if you choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Be careful. Suffering is different. Persecution, they go together. But, but, but be careful. You live long enough in this world, you're going to get that call. You're going to be the one who suffers. But here's the reality. Persecution and opposition very often comes when we choose to be faithful to God. And sometimes we brag, I've lived my whole life and I've never gone through persecution. You and I had better make sure it's because we've never tried to live righteous for Christ. Because all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you haven't gotten, if somebody hasn't been mad at you, if somebody hasn't opposed you, if somebody hasn't looked at you and told you or gotten angry with you, even when you were doing the best you can in love, 
If, somebody's, if, you, if you've never had that experience, then you need to step back, and we need to step back, and we need to ask, are we being as faithful to the Word of God as we need to be? Because when you do, there will be opposition. That's, that's guaranteed for everyone. But suffering, suffering, persecution, one church in a community, and it grows and it thrives and it becomes a multi-thousand member church. And, they, and they, it looks like they've got an open door set before them. And then you better be careful that that church doesn't quickly become like one of these other three churches. You got another church, they're doing everything they can. It's all they can do to keep the lights on. They're trying to be faithful to Christ and they got the government's trying to shut them down. They got people in the community that don't want them there. You live in certain parts of the world where if they see you carry anything that looks like a Bible, if they get a chance to, they'll take your life. I cannot answer the question why, but I can tell you that fear of suffering and persecution is not an excuse for us to be a faithless or unfaithful Christian. Find the strength that we need from God. And we're going to talk about this next week. Because next week we're going to look at seven pictures of Christ and seven rewards. And it's going to be good. Amen? I don't get scattered. 14 things, but we're going to cover them. Two, we're going to, seven. We're going to cover them together, and it won't take long, I promise. Amen. But even if it does, you're going to like it, and you ain't going to care. Okay, so I'm just saying. I, I would do it this morning, but we would be here for another hour, okay? And I don't want to do that to you. Seven beautiful pictures of Christ and seven ways that he rewards the child of God. And, and, and I'm going to tell you this, beloved. I want to live my life knowing that the day is going to come when I stand before God. And rather than having received the praise and reward of men, I received the praise and reward of God. So let me give you this quickly and we're done. By the way, there's a pattern in Scripture of those who suffer. And those, Hebrews chapter 11 some were faithful unto death. Some were faithful and died naturally. It, 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 you choose to live for God. You're, when, you, when he calls you home, you could lay down on a pillow one night and take your last breath, and the next thing you know, you're in the presence of God. Or you could find yourself in another country, another part of the world. You could find yourself being threatened by the hands of wicked and angry men. And here's what I want us to remember. Number one, expect suffering in this world. Expect it. Expect suffering and persecution. Number two, don't compare suffering and persecution. Oh, if you only knew what I was going through, you know there are a thousand other people who could outdo you with that statement, amen? Oh, you don't know how bad I got it. You think you got it bad? I can show you bad. Amen. Don't compare suffering. I think sometimes we get a little too bragging and a little too bold with that, but Expect suffering. Don't compare it. Number three, patience and endurance. Now, this is good. Patience and endurance is evidence of your faithfulness, not great wealth or social status. When he writes to the churches, he, says, he said, the one, you got riches, you got money, but you are dead. To the church at Ephesus and to the church at Philadelphia, both who were poor churches and communities where they did not have resources and they did not have wealth or Smyrna and Philadelphia they did not they were small churches and small communities impoverished and yet God says they were spreading the gospel for him wealth and status is not what determines your faithfulness patience and endurance is an evidence of faithfulness amen it's those who <laughs> when the going gets tough the tough get going you know that old saying you want to know who well, you can look at any church and you can see who's faithful and who isn't.
about who's there and who's not. Expect suffering. Don't compare it. Patience and endurance. One day, all suffering will end. One day, all suffering will end. And then finally, it is suffering. It is suffering that honors and glorifies God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of God, and he will go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him a new name. For the one who endures, for the one who suffers, God says that when everybody looks, you will be a pillar in the temple. So that when they look at that person, when they think about that person, all they do is think about the name of God and the glory of God. And as we're going to see next week, that person is going to be given a special name known only to them and God. I don't know about you, beloved, but I like the idea that my God sees me and knows me and knows me by a name that I don't even know yet. I like to think that when I get to heaven, one of the things he's going to say to me, one of the names, one of the titles he's going to say to me is good and faithful servant. I'd like to think that when I get it, and, and, and some are going to get to heaven, and, and God's going to call this one by the name generous. God's going to call this one by the name faithful. God's going to call this one by the name kind. I'm preaching next week's sermon. I've got to stop. Know that there is, and if you don't get anything else out of the message, get it this morning. There is nothing better, no privilege greater, no honor worth more than being able to know and be called a child of the Most High God. A member of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Jesus. That's who we are this morning. Amen? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning.